Hear that? It's the sound of someone whacking the ground with a rake. Specifically, they're beating around the bush, which we've done enough of in this ad too, so let's get right to it. The new moneymaker scratch-off from the Ohio Lottery doesn't beat around the bush. Money maker. Play the game and you could win money, up to $2 million. With more than $88 million in prizes, ranging from $50 to $500, Moneymaker cuts right to the cash. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like... What the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers and industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. In November 1934, General Smedley D. Butler reached for his morning newspaper and came face to face with himself. Next to his name were words like liar and hoax. General Butler was considered an honest man. In fact, the retired Marine was one of the most decorated veterans in the history of the United States. Now his reputation was ruined. Butler wasn't surprised, but he was furious. The article was about testimony Butler had given the McCormick-Dickstein Committee about a plot to overthrow the President of the United States a plot led by the American Legion and a group of wealthy elites. Of course, America's wealthiest businessmen and bankers denied any and all involvement. They would be crazy not to. But if Butler could just get them to testify in front of the committee, he knew his name would be cleared. They would see that he was telling the truth, that there were indeed men who wanted to turn America into a fascist nation. Unfortunately for General Butler, that day never came. Welcome to Conspiracy Theories, a podcast original. Every Wednesday, we dig into the complicated stories behind the world's most controversial events and search for the truth. I'm Carter Roy. And I'm Molly Brandenburg. And neither of us are conspiracy theorists. But we are open-minded, skeptical, and curious. Don't get us wrong. Sometimes the official version is the truth. But sometimes it's not. You can find episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. To stream Conspiracy Theories for free on Spotify, just open the app and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. At ParCast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. This is our second episode on The Business Plot, 
a 1930s conspiracy theory that started with one man's testimony to a special committee of the United States House of Representatives. That man was decorated war veteran, Major General Smedley D. Butler. Last week, we reviewed the official story that in 1934, the Special Committee on Un-American Activities found there was no evidence that required them to investigate Butler's claims further, that Butler's claims were essentially false. We gave a detailed account of Butler's side of the story. He says he was approached by Gerald McGuire, commander for the American Legion, to assist in an elaborate plot to purchase FDR's presidency and usurp his power. This week, we'll explore our one and only theory, that Butler's claims were true and the American government covered up a fascist takeover. But we'll break it down by separating it into its three main elements. First, the Special Committee on Un-American Activities worked to keep the truth behind Butler's claims under wraps. Second, only some of Butler's testimony was released to the public, The redacted information contained important details in understanding its gravity. And third, wealthy bankers really were conspiring against FDR and financially supported the fascist takeover. Because we'll only be exploring one theory, we're going to save our final rating for the end of the episode. We promise it'll be worth it. In 1933, President Roosevelt promised that his New Deal for the American people would bring significant change to the economy. But some members of the upper class feared his programs were a bit too socialist. On November 20th, 1934, General Smedley D. Butler testified to the Special Committee on Un-American Activities that the American Legion had tried to recruit him into a plot to overthrow the Roosevelt administration. Their plan was to buy out the presidency and establish a fascist arm of the government that would govern while leaving the president as a mere figurehead. At the time, the committee determined there was no truth to Butler's claims, but to this day, there are still those who believe Butler was telling the truth. After all, what motivation did the 53-year-old war hero have? He had already proven his vested interest in protecting our country. Why would this be different? If Butler was telling the truth, it would likely mean that the Special Committee on Un-American Activities somehow played a role in the cover-up. To get a better idea of how that might have happened, we have to take a look at why it was established in the first place and what powers they really had. Interestingly, the House of Representatives formed the Special Committee on Un-American Activities just months before Butler's testimony. At the time, it was referred to as the McCormick-Dickstein Committee, after its chair and vice chair. Its mission was to obtain, quote, information on how foreign subversive propaganda entered the U.S. and the organizations that were spreading it. The idea to form the committee came from Samuel Dickstein. He was a Russian-born Jewish Democrat who immigrated with his parents to New York City in 1887. Unlike many of his other constituents, Dickstein was a rather progressive liberal. And he was self-aware enough to know what that meant. He wrote in his memoir, If you want to call me a socialist because I am advocating better housing, then that's what I must be. It was a pretty controversial statement to make in the 1930s. 
a time where little distinction was made between socialism and communism. After all, World War I had just ended. But his progressive ideas didn't stop Dickstein from rising to prominence. In 1930, he was elected to lead the Committee on Immigration and Naturalization. And because of that position, Dickstein became acutely aware of an increase in anti-Semitic activities, both at home and abroad. As a Jewish man, the matter was personal. In 1933, he began investigating Nazi propaganda activities by aliens in the U.S., which he then brought to Congress. In one congressional hearing, Dickstein questioned a man known as Mr. X. The man claimed that Nazi Germany was gearing up to establish an absolute dictatorship in the United States. The words were chilling. But the hearings were conducted almost entirely in executive session, so the testimonies were never made public. All we know for sure is that whatever evidence Mr. X presented on the stand, it was enough for Congress to form a committee to investigate further. In March 1934, the Special Committee on Un-American Activities was born. This was a major victory for Dickstein who had spent the better part of his career campaigning against fascism. But the House had yet to determine who would oversee the committee. The obvious choice might have been Dickstein, but he understood that his Jewish descent gave him a bias, and one that could result in partial rulings. So he turned to Representative John W. McCormick instead. McCormick was a Roman Catholic Democrat from Boston, Massachusetts. He was first elected to Congress in 1928 as the United States neared the Great Depression. He was known for his collected demeanor and his interest in the facts. It didn't hurt that McCormick was a liberal with a similar progressive agenda. McCormick first impressed Dickstein when he opposed the 1924 Immigration Act, limiting European immigration. It was an unpopular stance at the time, but McCormick stood by his beliefs. So McCormick was made the chairman while Dickstein became the vice chair. They were joined by five more representatives, three Republicans and two Democrats. We know that between 1934 and 1935, the McCormick-Dickstein committee held seven public and 27 executive hearings. The distinction between public and executive hearings being that McCormick only made public information that would pass for admissible in a courtroom. Admissibility, meaning that the materials or intelligence gathered could be used as evidence in a court of law. By definition, it excludes anything that would be considered hearsay or irrelevant. As far as precedent goes, McCormick's criteria were standard practice in government. The idea is to prevent unnecessary widespread alarm. But tensions within the committee began to arise when Dickstein started to develop a short temper. He started becoming prone to wild outbursts that were often not rooted in fact. To some extent, it was understandable, given his ancestry and personal stake in the material, but it led to some accusations that Dickstein wanted the limelight. And that's when the committee was made aware of a fascist plot that wasn't tied to Hitler or the Nazis. On November 20th, 1934, General Smedley D. Butler delivered the testimony that we heard last week. To this day, it remains unclear exactly why the committee heard Butler's case. At the time, 
An American activity was essentially synonymous with communism and Nazi Germany. Butler's case was a bit of a sidestep for them. But Butler was a war hero, and he had already taken his story to the newspapers. So maybe they knew they were in a unique position to try and get ahead of the story and squash it before it got out of hand. Or maybe they knew he was telling the truth. As we discussed last week, the committee only called one other man to testify before them, Jerry Maguire. Maguire was a bond salesman for the Wall Street Company, Grayson, Murphy & Company. He was also a member of the American Legion, an organization meant to help U.S. veterans. And according to Butler, he was the man responsible for orchestrating the entire plot. Butler implicated many other men in the conspiracy, but not a single one appeared before the special committee. When the initial report was released on November 26, 1934, the reason the committee believed there was no evidence was because everything that had been presented was hearsay and thus inadmissible in a court of law. The committee essentially laughed Butler's claims away, and that's the story that the public read about. A hoax, a lie, a man starved for attention. But in reality, the investigation didn't end. Their final report, which included follow-up interviews with McGuire, was released to Congress on February 15, 1935, almost three months after Butler took the stand. And initially, that report was never made public. And in that report, it clearly states, there is no question that these attempts were discussed, were planned, and might have been placed in execution when and if the financial backers deemed it expedient. The report also reveals McGuire's inability to recall key moments mentioned in Butler's testimony and several large sums of money in his accounting that McGuire didn't have a satisfactory explanation for. But as we said, nobody else testified. No one was prosecuted. If the committee acknowledged wrongdoing, why did everything just mysteriously come to a halt? In fact, the entire committee for un-American activity was disbanded soon after Butler took the stand. In response to the committee's statement, Roger Baldwin, the founder of the American Civil Liberties Union, said, imagine the action if such a plot were discovered among the communists. Baldwin is implying that these men weren't called to testify because of their status, who they were. Had this plot involved communism rather than fascism, the committee would have been more inclined to pursue it further. But fascism was too closely tied with capitalism. In 1971, McCormick commented on the committee's sudden end date. He said, I felt that we had completed our job. The purpose of the investigating committee is to investigate and get the facts and report them to the House or the Senate. We had made our complete investigations, so I could see no necessity for this committee being continued for another year. But what job was McCormick referring to? What had they completed? They certainly didn't rid the world of fascism or communism. It wasn't as if un-American organizations could no longer get created with new and dangerous agendas. Maybe it had to do with the committee nearing the cap of its $30,000 budget. 
Maybe the McCormick-Dickstein Committee just couldn't prove that the threat of communism and fascism on American soil was enough to be worth their time. Or maybe Congress stepped in and shut them down to protect the interest of big business. The men Butler named in his testimony were some of the wealthiest and most influential in America. Today, we would call them special interests, businesses with influence over the government. Men like J.P. Morgan, the DuPonts, even Prescott Bush, George W. Bush's grandfather. It's certainly possible that the committee received a considerable financial donation to sweep everything under the rug. Especially because we now know that Samuel Dickstein was used to accepting bribes and may have even been a Soviet spy. Coming up, was Samuel Dickstein in on the conspiracy? This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In November of 1934, the chairs of the Special Committee on Un-American Activities, Samuel Dickstein and John William McCormick, sat in session. There, they heard General Smedley Butler's claims that there was a fascist plot to overthrow President Roosevelt. However, of the many men that Butler implicated, only one was interviewed. Shortly after, the committee mysteriously dissolved. In 1999, historian Alan Weinstein and Russian spy-turned-journalist Alexander Vasilyev published the book The Haunted Wood, Soviet Espionage in America, the Stalin Era. In it, they claimed that Representative Samuel Dickstein, the founder of the committee that heard Butler's testimony, was conspiring with an organization known as NKVD, the secret police force that worked for Joseph Stalin. The book claimed that for several years, Dickstein was being bribed to work as a mole for the Soviet Union. His position within the House of Representatives and Congress made him privy to plenty of top-secret and classified government information. According to Weinstein and Vasilyev, Dickstein's transition into a life of crime happened naturally. While leading the Committee on Immigration and Naturalization, he was approached by an Austrian man looking to gain American citizenship. Dickstein informed the man that the quota had been met, but if he paid Dickstein $3,000, he would secure the man's citizenship anyways. It wasn't Dickstein's first abuse of political power, and apparently each time he was motivated by greed. A declassified NKVD memo confirmed his involvement with the Soviet Union. Dickstein's Soviet handler, known only as Igor, allegedly claimed, we are fully aware whom we are dealing with. Crook is completely justifying his code name. This is an unscrupulous type, greedy for money, consented to work because of money, a very cunning swindler. If true, it speaks to the character of a person who is able to be purchased. 
and the men that Butler implicated certainly had the means to buy Dickstein's silence. There's only one problem. According to Weinstein and Vasiliev, Dickstein wasn't recruited by the NKVD until 1937, several years after the McCormick-Dickstein Committee disbanded. And of course, there's been no hard evidence that foul play occurred in Butler's case. That being said, if we were to compare the character testimony of Dickstein and Butler, implications can be drawn. Prior to being called a liar by the national media, Butler was revered. And even after the slander, Butler maintained his professionalism. He stood by everything he believed and continued lobbying for veterans' rights. He said his piece. Which brings us to the second element of today's conspiracy theory. Critical information was deliberately left out of the public records to cover up the plot. In the weeks following his testimony, General Butler was parodied repeatedly in some of the biggest newspapers in the country. But on January 29, 1935, he finally gained some support in an issue of The New Masses. Interestingly enough, it was a communist magazine written by a man named John Spivak. Spivak was a left-leaning investigator, creative by nature, He often inserted himself into his work, dramatizing the interactions between his subject and himself. Most of his stories were on communism, fascism, and exposing the corruption of capitalism. Spivak heard rumors that Frank Belgrano, the commander of the American Legion, was called to testify before the special committee in regards to Butler's allegations but he was inexplicably sent home without being asked a single question. Spivak knew there had to be more to the story. He and other reporters began pressing for answers. As a result, in February of 1935, McCormick and Dickstein released a 125-page detailed testimony titled Extracts. On the last page, it contained the following note. In making public the foregoing evidence, the committee has ordered stricken therefrom certain immaterial and incompetent evidence, or evidence which was not pertinent to the inquiry and which would not have been received during a public hearing. In other words, McCormick and Dickstein omitted information from the report because they deemed it hearsay. By definition, hearsay is a report of another's words outside of the witness and is usually inadmissible in court. What's suspicious is all of Butler's testimony was hearsay, but only pieces of it were redacted. From an outside perspective, it appeared that the committee had carefully selected what they were going to leave out. According to Jules Archer in The Plot to Seize the White House, A veteran Washington correspondent told Spivak that he had heard the deletions had been made at the request of a member of the president's cabinet. The implication was that release of certain names could embarrass the Democratic Party because two had been unsuccessful Democratic candidates for the presidency. It has since come out that these men were Al Smith, former New York governor, and John W. Davis, a lawyer for J.P. Morgan and Associates. Butler claimed Davis was the one who wrote the speech that McGuire wanted him to give at the American Legion Convention in 1933. 
We know that because a week after the McCormick-Dickstein committee expired, Spivak was finally able to acquire the unredacted testimonies. Spivak posed as a journalist writing an article about the success of the special committee. Dickstein then gave him permission to peruse their files. In them, Spivak found the original, unedited version of Butler's testimony. He copied down everything. And he noticed discrepancies between the copy he found and the one released to the public. When Spivak questioned McCormick about the differences, Dickstein allegedly said, Oh, somebody's been telling you things. To which Spivak replied, No one has been telling me things. I have the notes. McCormick, known for his even temper, suddenly became enraged. He accused Spivak of wanting to hang him. He then ended the interview. Luckily, Spivak convinced McCormick to answer a list of questions on his own time at his own pace. He wrote down his questions and handed them over to the chairman. Spivak agreed not to use any information from the beginning of the interview. But after that meeting, it was clear to Spivak that McCormick had something to hide. Three days later, McCormick sent his reply to the reporter, but left most of the questions unanswered. Realizing he would get nowhere with McCormick, Spivak moved to Dickstein instead. Dickstein was a little more candid, but appeared to have no additional information on the more hard-hitting questions. Spivak wrote, It was obvious that Dickstein simply did not know what was going on around him. Spivak published these interviews, along with Butler's unedited testimony, in the January 29, 1935, front-page story of The New Masses. It was titled, Wall Street's Fascist Conspiracy, Testimony that the Dickstein Committee Suppressed. It began with a statement, an organized conspiracy exists to seize the government by a fascist coup. The Congressional Committee appointed to investigate such activities has deliberately suppressed evidence pointing in that direction. Spivak confirmed that the redacted portion of the report couldn't be based on hearsay, like the committee previously claimed. Butler's statements included phrases like, McGuire said that the distinguished guest committee of the American Legion, at McGuire's suggestion, put my name down to be invited. The committee had clearly cherry-picked what hearsay could be included. And apparently, the very next statement that was removed included the fact that Butler's name was removed from a guest list. A guest list of people set to attend an American Legion convention. To make it more complicated, it appears President Roosevelt had Butler's name removed. Spivak also claimed that the committee knew Butler was asked to help stage a coup prior to him testifying. Yet McCormick and Dickstein didn't do anything until Butler met with reporter Paul French in the summer of 1934. It wasn't until after French's article hit stands that the committee addressed his concerns. So perhaps Dickstein was more aware than he let on. Given his relationship to the NKVD, he was no stranger to playing dumb. Well, one thing is for sure. Not publishing parts of the testimony affected public opinion. The question is whether or not it was done with malintent. McCormick was known for maintaining high standards for what he considered admissible. 
It could be as simple as he was holding the committee to those standards. In The Plot to Seize the White House, Jules Archer discusses a meeting with McCormick in 1971. When asked his reason for striking information from the record, McCormick said, I don't recall striking anything from the record. We also have to consider Spivak's motivations for lying as well. There was little stopping him from making up information to sell his stories. Well, we've proven that Dickstein could be bought and that the special committee could and did redact information in their report. We may not be able to prove that the omissions were incriminating, but nobody can prove that they weren't. As Butler said, his testimony stopped dead in its tracks when it got near the top. There has to be a reason for that. There are those that believe McCormick and Dickstein weren't the top, and neither was Congress. In fact, there are those that believe that the United States government hasn't run our country in quite some time. It's run by big business, special interests, and men like Prescott Bush. Up next, Wall Street's involvement in the business plot. Now, back to the story. John Spivak's January 1935 article in the New Masses magazine shed light on the unpublished moments of General Smedley Butler's testimony of a plot to take over the country. Spivak insisted that there was more truth than the Special Committee on Un-American Activities wanted the public to know, or rather the people in charge of the committee, and it might not have been committee chairs Dickstein and McCormick. Which leads us to our third and final piece of this conspiracy theory. Wealthy Wall Street bankers were behind the plan to overthrow FDR and the resulting cover-up. When Butler's story hit the papers in 1935, many bankers were quick to respond in the press, including the accused. Thomas W. Lamont, a partner at J.P. Morgan and Associates, was one of the first to react. Lamont called Butler's story, perfect moonshine, too unutterably ridiculous to comment upon. Colonel Grayson M.P. Murphy said, I can't imagine how anyone could produce it or any sane person believe it. It is absolutely false so far as it relates to me and my firm. Grayson was Gerald McGuire's employer and the financier of the American Legion. He also happened to be a preferred client at J.P. Morgan. Shakespeare put it best, except in this case it's not a lady, but the men doth protest too much, methinks. The level of anger and dismissal could be a defense tactic and a sign that they had something to hide. After all, aren't the innocent usually happy to provide testimony and alibis? It's the guilty who won't give the law their time. I'm not sure I would go that far. I think anyone would be hurt to have their reputation called into question like that. But I agree that their statements should be examined with just as much scrutiny as Butler's. Their reputations were on the line. And unlike Butler, that meant their fortunes were at risk. They could face jail time. Don't forget, the committee found that there was evidence of a plot. There was just no evidence of any follow-through, or so they said. According to Spivak, he found evidence in the unredacted report that the organization Butler mentioned was actually created. 
Not long after Butler claims he was approached by McGuire, and before any information went public, the American Liberty League was formed. The group consisted mostly of elite businessmen. Their goal was to combat radicalism, preserve property rights, uphold and preserve the Constitution. Which sounds awfully similar to the organization Butler claimed intended to stage a coup. Butler even quoted McGuire saying that it would maintain the Constitution. Not to mention, the American Liberty League was made up of many of the same men that Butler implicated in his testimony. McGuire's employer, Colonel Grayson M.P. Murphy, became its treasurer. Robert Sterling Clark, the heir to the Singer sewing machine fortune, became a financial backer. In a controversial 2007 episode of Document on BBC Radio, reporter Mike Thompson implicated Prescott Bush, George W. Bush's grandfather, in the FDR coup. Allegedly, Bush had been a shareholder in companies that were profiting from relationships with Nazi bankers. And he continued to profit during World War II from companies making German goods. That might be true, but Bush's connection to Germany hardly proves that he was plotting to overthrow the president of the United States. Well, in 1942, Prescott Bush's assets were seized by the American government for a direct violation of the Trading with the Enemy Act, which suggests some form of abuse of power. True, but one misdeed doesn't make him complicit in another. It is, however, worth noting something that Harold X mentions in his book, America's House of Lord, an inquiry into the freedom of the press. Ix argues that the press is essentially in control of many of the outcomes of the government. Those who control the media are more or less in charge of democracy. He writes, virtually the first act of any dictatorship is to seize control of the press so as to make it an instrument of the despot. Well, at the time, many Wall Street investors owned or held stock in the largest news outlets. To name one, J.P. Morgan was an investor in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. After Butler's testimony, the New York Times wrote an editorial piece calling it a giant hoax. But the issue here is we're so far removed from the positions of power that would have any evidence to prove anything. We can talk about motives and circumstances until we're breathless, but it's still just hearsay. It always comes back to hearsay. I know, but if it looks like a horse and smells like a horse, it's probably a horse. That's how I feel. There are too many people with a stake in the narrative. And the only one without any stake seems to be General Smedley D. Butler, the whistleblower. He was called a liar for something that later turned out to be true. There was talk of a plot. But you can't go to jail for words. Freedom of speech is protected under the First Amendment of the Constitution. No judge would indict anyone based on something they said, and that's a good thing. Holding people legally accountable for ideas and words is a slippery slope. Well, but so is special interests in politics. America has a long history of big businesses influencing elections with their wealth. True. But having money doesn't make you evil. How you use that money does. And we have no proof that any money exchanged hands illegally. 
Now, just because there aren't fingerprints at a crime scene doesn't mean no one was there. Okay, I think it's time to rank our conspiracy theory. Otherwise, we could go in circles for days. But first, let's break it down into its elements one more time. First, the Special Committee on Un-American Activities worked to keep the truth behind Butler's claims under wraps. I think we proved that it's possible, but not likely. I'd like to think McCormick was just good at his job. He was looking for hard facts and didn't find any. Though he didn't look too hard. The second element of this conspiracy theory, only some of Butler's testimony was released to the public. The redacted information contained details important to understanding its gravity. I think that one is undeniable. It's true. Agreed. And the third point was that wealthy bankers were conspiring against FDR and financially supported the fascist takeover. I think it's possible, but not likely. Me too. There are easier ways to get control of a government. We've mentioned them. Control the press and donate to campaigns. There's no need to stage a coup. All in all, I give this theory a 6 out of 10 with 10 being the most likely and 1 being the least likely. We can speculate all we want, but until there is more concrete evidence, I'm going to give this theory a 3 out of 10. There's a reason that our legal system can't convict anyone based on circumstantial evidence alone. We've all heard the phrase, guilt beyond a reasonable doubt. It's critical to our justice system. It helps make sure innocent people don't spend their lives in jail for a crime they never committed. Wrongful sentencing happens today, even with our modern standards for conviction. What about justice for General Smedley Butler? He was ridiculed and made to look like a fool for the rest of his life for something that was more or less true. I think we can only try to tell his story as we now know it. We owe General Butler a great deal of gratitude. If he never took his story to the press, who knows what would have happened? Maybe the plot to turn President Roosevelt into a puppet for the wealthy elite would have actually happened. You're assuming it didn't, but we'll never know any of that for sure. Thanks for tuning in to Conspiracy Theories. We'll be back Wednesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Conspiracy Theories and all other podcast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite podcast originals, like Conspiracy Theories, for free, from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Conspiracy Theories on Spotify, just open the app, tap Browse, and type Conspiracy Theories in the search bar. Until then, remember, the truth isn't always the best story. And the official story isn't always the truth. Conspiracy Theories was created by Max Cutler and is a Parcast Studios original. Executive producers include Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Anthony Valsic, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Travis Clark. This episode of Conspiracy Theories was written by Jenna Lennon, with writing assistance by Kate Gallagher and stars Molly Brandenburg and Carter Roy.